Thank you for listening to WWCU. This year is 2020, and believe it or not, women have had the right to vote for 100 years. It seems like a long time and also no time at all at the same time. And with me today, I have three wonderful women. First of all, I would like to introduce Pam Meister, who is the director of the Mountain Heritage Center. Thank you so much for being on today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I also have two undergraduate students. So ladies, if you could just one at a time, introduce yourself and let us know how you've been working with Pam. Uh, I'm Autumn Chandler. I'm a senior at Western Carolina University. I'm a double major in history and anthropology with a public history certificate. I'm currently an intern at Mountain Heritage Center and I've been working with Pam pretty closely on working on the women's suffrage exhibit, specifically on the Western Carolina story. And my name is Sarah Stanley, and I'm actually a communication major with a double concentration in broadcasting and journalism. And I was connected with the Mountain Heritage Center through a class project. I was assigned to do a reporting project on the 19th Amendment exhibit. So through that, I've sort of become involved in creating some advertisements and some work featuring this this wonderful exhibit so i've gotten to know these wonderful ladies through that well thank you all very very much again for joining me today this is a huge event i feel and of course 2020 has had the most intense things happening that maybe this isn't on the front of our minds but i do like to celebrate where celebration is needed so we're going to jump into this and I want to ask you a little bit about the history, right? So we know it's 2020. We know we've had our 19th Amendment rights for over 100 years. So when did the fight for women's suffrage truly begin? Um, this is fairly complicated. The date that's most commonly cited is the 1848 meeting in Seneca Falls, New York, which was called by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. But that meeting was actually about a very broad range of women's rights, with voting rights being the most radical demand. These were the dangerous radicals of the day. The um, voting rights movement really grew out of primarily the abolition movement. Um, both Stanton and Anthony were abolitionists, and um, to a lesser extent from the temperance movement. But it's been going on for a long time, and you know, voting rights and rights in general um, tend to be a process more than um, you know getting to certain things. There are certainly wonderful landmarks, and we're thrilled to be able to celebrate the milestone of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But if you start in 1848, it is 72 years it took for this to actually happen at a national level, and three generations of women took part in that. Literally, the ones who started it weren't alive when the amendment was ratified. Wow, and so that's that's a testament to truly how long these things take. And I love that you're saying that these were the radicals of the day, as in, you know, every single generation has their own set of what we consider to be completely radical. Yeah, I have actually a great story about that. Um, Caddy Stanton was a prolific and very good writer, and she sort of modeled the Declaration of Sentiments that she presented at this meeting on the Declaration of Independence. And so she was doing it, writing it, and she asked her husband, who was generally very supportive of her, check out what she had written. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is great, until he got to the women um, need demand the right to vote. And he went, this is way too radical. This will never happen. You're crazy. And she said, this is what I really want. 
And he said, if you do this, I'm not coming to the meeting. And she said, I'm doing it. You just don't come. And he didn't. Someone who did stand up for the right to vote, however, was kind of unexpected. Frederick Douglass, who, you know, was enslaved and became freed and became a very famous author, was an ardent suffragist. And he went to the meeting Mm -hmm. and he spoke in favor of that particular demand and swayed the convention so that everybody voted in favor for it. Well, thank you so much, Pam. And Sarah and Autumn, if you would like to add to that question. I think I would just say that, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton did something amazing back then with even starting this movement. But I think there was something brewing far before then. It's not like women just woke up one day and decided that they wanted to have the right to vote. I think it was something that started brewing within the hearts of women everywhere far before then. And it just took a massive movement to get it going. But I think Mm -hmm. it's always been something, you know, women want power, women deserve power. So I think we need to look even farther back. But for history's sake, it started back then with Elizabeth Cady (laughs) Stanton. Well, Sarah, you're bringing up a great point and kind of leading us into our next topic. We have this idea that, you know, once women have the right to vote, women do it. But I'm sure that the culture took a little bit more time. So after the 19th Amendment was actually ratified, like how many women actually took part in the electoral process? Well, it's complicated once again. Um, I think, you know, I'm the one with the research. And actually, um, back at that point in time, um, you know, records ha- were not kept, particularly that were gender specific. And so it really took um, contemporary scholars going back and looking at the voter registration records and figuring it out. But thank goodness, a um, couple of scholars did and came out with books in 2019. 2016 and 2020. Um, And so what they estimate, and one thing that we do know is that, um, you know, that 2020, the November 2020 election was the first one in which women had the right to vote. And um, the total popular vote increased dramatically from the previous presidential election, which had 18.5 million in 1916. The 1920 overall voter count was 26.8 million. So, you know, that was an 8.3 million increase, which is mainly attributed to the passage of the 19th Amendment. But it's estimated that only 36% of eligible female voters turned out to vote compared to 68% of the male voters. Now, this low turnout was partly due to a lot of other barriers to voting that are going on at that point, right? Uh, such as the literacy test, long residency requirements, and poll taxes, which, remember, we are in uh, the Jim Crow era when a lot of this is um, already in place to keep people of color from voting, but also were pretty effective for women. The other thing that confuses the issue is that, um, you know, before the 19th Amendment, it was the responsibility of each state to decide if women could vote. And by 1919, 15 of the 48 states had already granted women suffrage. So women 
primarily in the western states, had been voting for a while. Wyoming was the first one, and um, they gave women the right to vote in 1869. So, like I said, it's a little muddy, but basically, you're right. Voter turnout was quite low to begin with, and a lot of the suffragist organizations converted and became the League of Women Voters and really made voter education a priority. However, starting in, I think for sure, the 1980s, women voters in America for presidential elections have consistently um, had higher percentages of turnout than male voters, usually by um, like three two or three, sometimes four percent, which these days um, means a difference of almost 10 million votes. So women voters are very, very powerful. And that builds into the next question perfectly. Like, how is this culture kind of evolved over time? Obviously, more women take part in this process. But you bring up a great point that, I mean, Wyoming has been letting women vote since 1869. That's incredible. Good for them, right? (laughs) Right. So I would ask, how has the culture of female voting and election participation evolved throughout the last century? Autumn, why don't you talk about the work you've been doing? I can talk about it specifically with Western Carolina University because a woman was a person was the person who got a polling place established at Western. Uh, in 2016, Joanna Woodson really just felt that college-age voters needed to vote more, and the best way to do that was to be able to get a polling place established on campus. It's been one of the largest um, polling places in Jackson County since the establishment of it in 2016. Uh, between 2016 and 2020, over 5,000 people have voted at, that, uh, at this location. And I think it's just an, it's a testament to how powerful women can be when they have this opportunity because they want to see this change. Joanna Woodson wanted to see a change and wanted to see people get involved in their civic duty. So she had a polling place established on campus. Women get things done. As women in 2020, what did it feel like to vote? It, it was uh, autumn. It was absolutely amazing. I felt so honored to be able to use the power that I had been given by so many people who had fought so hard for it. I feel honored every single time I get to vote, even if it's uh, just midterm elections or anything. I feel like every opportunity I get to make a change is amazing. Yeah, and this is Sarah. And this was my first year voting in a presidential election. And being able to see the amount of women and the amount of minority groups and the amount of underrepresented people Voicing their opinions to really try to get change into our government was honestly moving. Like, I felt different on that day. And I think we really don't know how lucky we are. Like, we tend to think about the negative things, but as women and as, you know, citizens of this country, we do have a lot of privileges. And I think it is best that we use them. This is Pam, and um, I have an observation. I was lucky to be raised in a family where it was drummed into our little heads from a very young age that voting was the most important thing we could do as citizens and that there was no question we should always do it. So I always feel empowered. But this year, you know, when I went to the early voting polling place and looked around and saw how many women were in charge of the process when I was right there voting. And then, you know, when I was watching television on election night and all of that, um, and, uh, you know, 
the polls um, people who were were in charge of the vote counting and who were in charge of the logistics and many of the secretaries of state were women. And I was struck and I wasn't sure if, you know, I'm just a little biased or if indeed, but it seems to me that something that certainly has changed from 100 years ago when everybody who was in charge of the process of voting was male, that a lot of the people who are actually in charge of the process and the procedures of voting are female now. So not just the power to vote, but the power to take part in that whole process. Yes, yes. And I will agree with Sarah. Full participation. Yes, and I will agree with Sarah that uh, this was my first presidential election to vote in. And so I became just very acutely aware of my ability as a woman to do this. Uh, we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but do we know the numbers of how many women voted this year? And if I would assume it has steadily increased throughout this century? Nobody's saying yet. Uh, I, I really, when I got your, your questions yesterday, this is Pam, I really looked. Um, on all of the, you know, live reporting. And unfortunately, nobody is really splitting it out um, by gender, although they are saying that they really do think that voter turnout numbers overall will surpass 2008, which has been the largest voter turnout ever so far. Um, but, you know, the numbers they're tossing around is approximately 150 million voters this year. I also tried to do some research on it about the genderedness of, you know, the state by state, the local elections, the national, and I could not find any of that information. So I'm sure it will come later, maybe after the electoral college meets. Yeah, I think they're just trying to count those votes right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I would say, like, something that I've learned with working with Pam and Autumn is the sheer, like, rebel nature of some of these women that started this movement. So I can only imagine that it has increased, you know, clearly it has since we got the right to vote. But I think women back then were sort of either scared to use their rights or they were being oppressed by their male counterparts and sort of steered away from the polls. And I am just proud of how far we've moved away from that. You know, women have their voice. Women are mm -hmm. not typically scared to use their rights and to be pretty dang loud in voicing their opinion. And I'm proud to be a loud, opinionated woman, and I know you guys are as well. <laughs> yeah, I'd say we all have that in common. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very well said that it's not just about having the right to do so, but feeling empowered to use your voice. Every woman has one. And so I hope that as we move forward into the future, it becomes something that almost 100% of Americans do. And of course, almost 100% of women. I agree. Yeah, I'd like to remember the very first presidential candidate who was Shirley Chisholm, an African-American woman who... Um, ran um, in as the first candidate for a major party's nomination in 1972. She has this great quote, and she says, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And then there has been two, of course, women who were nominated to run for vice president, um, which was Geraldine Ferraro and Sarah Palin. 
and Geraldine, um, who was 1984, has a good quote, too. She said, every time a woman runs, women win. And I think that's a wonderful quote, too, that, yes, when we get out there, when we actually become part of the political process, that all women win. Yes, and that's going back again to not just having the power to vote, but the power to represent women, because women's issues can't be on the forefront if women are not on the forefront. Amen, sister. (laughs) We have a perfect (laughs) transition into we have to talk about Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. We have to. She's setting history right now. This is Autumn. Um, One, she's the first female VP, which is absolutely incredible. I remember watching her acceptance speech and just sobbing from how excited I was to see a woman in such a high position of power. But also, she she's a person of color in this position as well. It's, it's just absolutely incredible. She is shaping history by showing so many different people that they can get to the position that they want to be in and they can make a change. And I think it's absolutely incredible. You notice she wore her suffragist white um, and she did it on purpose. In that speech, she made reference to that about the suffrage movement and said she was wearing that white pantsuit in tribute to all of the women who made participation in the political process happen. I'm with you, Autumn. I was just, you know, sobbing over the whole thing. It was just it was wonderful. And this is Sarah. And I think one of the things that I'm really excited about is the opportunity that little girls right now are getting to have. Like when we were little, we didn't see women in that high of a position in our government and on TV. And I think it's going to be so exciting to see her face in history books and for little girls to grow up knowing that it is possible and it's not just an unreachable dream for them. Yeah, and and again, Vice President-elect Harris's um, speech where she said, I want America to be known as a place of possibilities was, you know, such the right thing to say, I think. I really believe that, Mm -hmm. you know, for all of us, that it's a place of possibilities, that, you know, great things could happen. How nice to, to have those sort of thoughts in our head these days. Yes, I would argue the sky is truly the limit and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is perfect proof of that. I'm interested in all of your opinions. Of course, this is an unknown fact. It's just what we're thinking. But as more women take political offices, I mean, more than ever before, what changes can we expect to see? Yeah, this is Sarah. And I mean, I can only hope for the best. Um, You know, I want to see you know, universal health care for all women, not just the women that can afford the health care plans. I would love to see the Equal Rights Amendment be passed. I just think we can see a lot of changes in the right direction. Just general good things for everyone. I think women have the good of everyone at heart. They're not thinking, well, let's scorn the men, let's leave them out of it. It's not about that. It's about taking care of everyone in this country. And I really hope to see stuff like that happen. This is Pam. I agree with Sarah 100%. I hope to see less partisan politics and more emphasis on working together to get things done. 
And I think that's something that women have traditionally excelled at, um, is coming together in various organizations and working together and moving forward. So I hope that we see a lot more of that. Uh, this is Autumn. And personally, I believe that we can't expect to see necessarily anything. And just like them, we hope to see these changes. I think it's going to take everyone coming together to work to see something different. And I completely agree with Pam and Sarah on this, that it should be a nonpartisan type thing. And everyone is working for the better of the country and not just for the political party. And so as a feminist, uh, you know, we say that women's issues are not just for women. They're also for men. I hope that everyone can come together and say, okay, these are things we need to do for the people in our community that happen to be women. I agree. So how does women's work, this idea of non-paid labor that happens in the house, so absolutely necessary, we have to have clean clothes, we have to have food to eat. How does that non-paid labor affect the political world? Is it represented in the political world, would you say? This is Autumn, and uh, I have many opinions on this topic. I've done a lot of history research in the uh, 1950s, and that's kind of when this idea came back, because before that, women were really involved in the like paid labor force and really working for war efforts. But in the 1950s, this is when it really came back into a mainstream idea that women were supposed to be in the home and supposed to be doing this non-paid labor and all of this kind of stuff, I think it really does take an effect on the political world because, you know, we still have people who grew up in that time frame. And even though they're not necessarily always in power, it still is, there's a lot of people who do still believe that women are this way and women should be in the home. I think it can take an effect on politics because um, not everyone believes that women really should be taking more power just because of how they were raised or anything like that. It's, they're a product of their generation and a product of their time. They, uh, it's not something they can necessarily always help, and you can just hope that they'll learn going forward. Sarah, and I would just say that, you know, typically the, the home labor, the non-paid things that need to happen are often used as something to repress women, and it has been used for you know decades and I think it's funny that <laughs> the men in the government who have maybe never vacuumed a carpet or washed their own clothes decide to make decisions about the bodies and health of the women who take care of them and I think it's a toxic cycle that needs to be broken and I think respect needs to be given to the fathers and the men who are stay-at-home dads or are not the primary breadwinners. I think there needs to be respect for that position on both sides. So I think we've got a lot of a lot of change that needs to happen in how we view people that do the home labor. Well, um, I do think that non-paid home labor masks really um, serious problems in infrastructure of health care, child care, and education that need to be solved. And so I really do think it's important to not take for granted all of this massive labor that is being done 
on a non-paying basis. And so, indeed, that, you know, of the laundry list of issues that need to be addressed, this is a big one in my mind. First of all, that you said this really highlights some infrastructural problems. So we see that a lot of these couples, one person is staying home because it is expensive to exist in this world. Childcare is expensive. Healthcare is expensive. Education is expensive. So if we have more of this, it takes a village mindset. If we have more community-based care things, I feel like we would be able to thrive as a people much better. Absolutely. And solve some problems of isolation as well. Um, I'm of an age where I really think a lot about elder care. And again, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are taking care of parents, who are taking care of um, veterans. And, um, you know, they are doing really, really important work Um, And again, they really are in desperate need of support. And while we're on the topic of support, uh, I know that many times when we talk about the rights of women, it is sometimes strewed as the less of rights for men, right? Like if we give more power to women, men have to give some of that power up. So how would you argue or what would you say it means for men that more women are in high ranking positions everywhere? So not just politics, but women are CEOs. Women are directors of Mountain Heritage Centers. Women are doctors. What does this mean for men? Well, as somebody who has spent an entire career um, uh, trying to um, shatter glass ceilings. Um, I think it's time for us to be working on gender-related salary inequities, um, particularly in traditionally pink-collar jobs. That, you know, the idea that the people who educate our children are some of the least well-paid professionals that there are just amazes me. And I think, you know, the gender pay gap in general um, is something that needs to be addressed. And um, I think we also need more women, not just in the business positions, but in leading corporate and nonprofit boards of directors as well. Let's get them into all the power positions. This is Sarah, and I completely agree with Pam. And I think so often I've heard men say, you know, if we put a woman in charge, we're doomed. And I think that's the most hilarious thing. If you put a woman in charge, oh no, you have a more diverse team and you're going to have a variety of opinions that may boost your boost your business and help you. So I think it means for men that we are moving up as a gender, as women, we are taking our place our rightful place as leaders. And I think we need to assert ourselves even more because I don't think anything bad can come of women in leadership roles. And I really, I really feel that in the industries where women are looked down upon and sort of held back, I think that's where the push needs to happen, you know, fast. I think we need to make our move and women all over the world need to realize that we have real power if women support women and the men aren't going to be left out. They're always going to be there and we're going to support them just the same. Uh, This is Autumn and from personal experience, I have grown up with 
insanely amazing women who have been in incredible positions of power. And just from my experience, the men in my family don't see it as a challenge or like them being put down or like they are getting less. They are extremely supportive of women. And I think that's how it needs to be all over the world. It's, it's not attacking men for women to have these positions of power. It is just making people care about other people. And it is just building each other up. And I think that's what it needs to be. I, I think Autumn and Sarah have, have been very eloquent and expressed what I believe to. Yes, very well said to both of you. Is there anything that we haven't talked about today that y'all would like to talk about? Well, I would like to mention that our women's suffrage exhibit, the one that Autumn and I have worked on and that Sarah has documented in several different ways, um, is still up physically in our Hunter Library exhibit gallery, and it's open to the WCU community. We are open Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and I know we just have a few more weeks of students on campus, but we would love for you to come by. Admission to our gallery is always free. We have our own door. It's right next door to the Java City front door. Um, so that will get you there. And we would love for you to take a look at this because there are so many more stories and interesting women and um, just stirring events um, that this exhibit talks about. And we would love to share that with you. Sarah is also, Sarah Autumn and I are about uh, to do a video tour of this exhibit too, which will ultimately be posted online. So if you miss the physical exhibit, you will still be able to see a, a, a video representation, a digital representation, and also um, you know, be able to uh, really appreciate Sarah and Autumn's talent. And I would like to say just what an empowering experience it's been to work with those two extraordinary young women. And I really have great hope for the generation that's coming up right now. Thank you, Pam. Yeah, thank you. And I would just say something that's inspired me about working on this project is that we need to know our history in order to make sure that the future goes as we want it to. I mean, if we don't know what happened, how can we make the right decisions in the future? So I think as young women, as older women, we need to come together and realize that some real changes need to be made and we have the power to make them. Well, all three of you were so beautifully spoken, so well said. Thank you for hyping up women everywhere. Thank you for fighting for it here on Western's campus. Of course, we need all the women in the world, but you three in particular are fantastic today. Well, thank you for hosting us. It was it was a real pleasure and a privilege. You just heard from Sarah Stanley and Autumn Chandler, both undergraduate students here at Western Carolina University, as well as Pam Meister, the director of the Mountain Heritage Center. Right now, there is a physical display up about women's suffrage, about the 19th Amendment. If you are unable to go in person, there will be a video tour of it. So you'll be able to find it online, Hunter Library at WCU, of course. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Lyndon Jones. We are Western Carolina University and happy 100 years of women's suffrage.